I, I was mentioning this to someone yesterday that how God was directing us uh, for this day and time uh, to bring us during the, the time that we were only doing live stream up until today and, and, and last week and, and today. All this time, we, we've been in, in, in two particular books. Uh, well, first and, Thess- first and Second Thessalonians, but also on Wednesday nights in Ecclesiastes. And, and all on purpose. That God has taken us into these things for a reason. And, and all of them are applying to the times that we're living in. And uh, all the more today, as we're looking at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we're dealing with the nearness of the coming of Jesus Christ. And Paul, as he spoke to a very young church and wrote to that young church, uh, first of all, he spoke to them because he, he actually instructed them face-to-face. In, in just a matter of weeks, the Word of God, teaching them also about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church, that after that would come the day of the Lord, and in the midst of the day of the Lord, certain things were going to happen. And it's interesting that in chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians, that he actually mentions the very fact that he's, he's going to come with the church to execute judgment upon this earth. And also to deal with, the, with that particular church about those who are beginning to wane in their faith and begin to look at, uh, you know, saying, you know, well, what's, what's the use of, of all of this? What's, what's the use if, if uh, you know, if, if the Lord's already come? Because somebody had been circulating a letter uh, under the name of Paul that, that uh, the Lord had already come, but he hadn't. So these are the voices that we're dealing with even today. There's so many voices out there telling us one thing or another. But we need to listen to what God is saying to us in his word for the church. And so as we enter into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul had, had already just commended this, this church for their, their, their uh, work of faith, their, their, their labor of, of, of love, and, and their patience of hope. But as we saw last time, he didn't mention hope in his second letter. Because they had been listening to other voices. They had become a little bit hopeless to the point that now they were just saying, you know, what's the use? I, you know, I'm not even going to work. I'm going to bum off of everybody else. He'll deal with that in chapter 3. So as we enter into chapter 2, it is that continuing understanding that he is trying to restore hope to this church in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letterous as from us. You know, in other words, there's a letter out there that might have my name on it, but it's not from us. And that is, as that the day of Christ is at hand. I'll explain that in just a moment. So again, in chapter 1 of this second letter to the church in Thessalonica, Paul gave a word of encouragement to a group of new believers as they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's one thing that we need to understand about the church in Thessalonica even before we went through the first letter, is that they were a persecuted church as young as they were in the Lord. So Paul had to encourage them about 
about their faith. He had to encourage them about their salvation. He had to encourage them about their nurturing and also about their being established in the Word of God and in their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians and look at verses 3 and 4, this is what he said to them. We are bound, he said, to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet or fitting, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, the charity or the love, the agape love, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. And as we enter now into chapter 2, Paul addressed certain doctrinal errors regarding the return of Jesus Christ that had crept into the church, as I mentioned, and, and continue to mention possibly through a letter attributed to Paul that was circulating the churches uh, and uh, bringing confusion to them. Paul, on the other hand, had been noticeably clear, clear about the distinctions between the return of Jesus for his church, which is called the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the second coming of the Lord at the culmination of the day of the Lord, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So we have the order, the rapture of the church in chapter 4 uh, of, of 1 Thessalonians, uh, the day of the Lord or the coming judgment uh, in chapter 5. But the results of the confusion manifested themselves in the affected lifestyles of the members in the church, which Paul would deal with in chapter 3. I believe this is also one of the concerns one of the concerns of a lockdown like we're having to experience today. Because what did that lockdown do to a lot of people? It, it, it got them to start kind of fearing things outside and, you know, narrowing really their view of, of, of what was going on, especially biblically. And this is another reason why I really believe that the Lord had put on our hearts to teach through these books to say, listen, we're going through a time, but God's in control. We're going through a rough time, but God's in control. And this, this isn't going to last a long time. We, we are going to see that God is opening the door to get us to go back out to do the things that God has called us to do and to be. So he's going to deal with those affected lifestyles in chapter 3, but what the, what the apostle was make was doing was making things understandable. He was making things understandable and seemingly knowing that they would be facing the, uh, these sorts of challenges with the facts. We have the facts for us, given to us in his word. This is the truth. From Genesis to Revelation, we have the truth. But man is the one who changes and, re, you know, changes the quote-unquote facts. Which, make them, which makes them no fact at all. So I want you to remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 when he prepares now to tell them about the rapture of the church. He says, but I would not have you to be ignorant brethren. I would not have you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant about the times and the seasons in which we live. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, as he says here, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. That you be not like the world who's, who, who today is, is really suffering from the, you know, I mean, can, can you 
be hopeful when people get on the TV and tell you, oh, listen, you know, we're, we're alone together in this. And, uh, you know, we'll soon be out of this. So wash your hands, put your mask on, do all of these things, you know. I, that doesn't encourage me. What encourages me is God is in control of all things. And at some point, he's going to call us back into his ministry, into his work, where we go, where we are. And as things are reopening today, there is the opportunities for us to be light and to be salt. We'll talk about that later. So that's exactly what we're seeing now in the 21st century when we're dealing with doctrinal error. The Lord is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant today, brethren. Or the Word is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. God is saying to us, I don't want you to be ignorant children. I don't want you to be ignorant about the times in which you're living because doctrinal error, doctrinal error has crept back into the church regarding prophetic and end times events. Now there's a very fancy word for the study of, of prophecy in, in the scriptures called eschatology. And there are those who are teaching an eschatological position known as preterism. And there's many others, but I, I mention preterism for this reason. It teaches that prophetic issues that are taught in the book of Revelation and by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew chapter 24 and Luke 21 and Mark 13, have already been fulfilled. They're teaching that that has already been fulfilled. In other words, if they are fulfilled, then we must be living in the kingdom age. Now, I need to ask you a question. Do you think, by what you see happening in the world today, especially today, that we are now living in the kingdom age? No. How can we be? We're living in fear. The world is living in fear of a virus. I'll tell you this, we ought to be fearing a different virus that's called sin. And that virus has been around since the fall of man. So if, if we consider that mindset of saying, well, everything's already been fulfilled, does that mean then that there's no rapture of the church? They don't believe in the rapture anyway. Does that mean that there's, uh, that, uh, uh, there's no being caught up to be with the Lord? Does that mean that there's, there's no meeting in the air as Paul has described so clearly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? I mean, there are other prophetic positions that are similar to this one as well. And you see, there is confusion where God does not want us to be confused. This is why he says, I would not have you to be ignorant. But much of the church today, and I hate to say it, but a majority of the church today does not teach the prophecies of the Scripture. Now, I hope and pray that some of them are waking, uh, are waking up. I hope that with what is going on today that they say, oh, you know what, I may, maybe we better get back into prophecy. But if they haven't been teaching prophecy over the last 10, 15, 20 years, is that going to be easy just to jump right back into it? With the confusion of what they've been taught already in some denominations? That would be very difficult. So with that in mind, about not wanting to be ignorant, that God doesn't want us to be ignorant about these things, let's go back to the text, verses 1 and 2 of 2 Thessalonians. 
Because Paul here says, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice that, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, the rapture of the church, that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. It is plainly clear from the two letters written to this church that Paul had instructed them from the Hebrew scriptures concerning the day of the Lord when he had preached and taught them in person. And again, we know that the day of the Lord is the period mentioned repeatedly in the prophets when God will bring judgment in a very direct and a very drastic way. Take, for example, I mean, we could, we could be giving you a huge list. But here, let's just look at a couple of them. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Notice what it says. And the language is very distinct about a coming that is going to be different than any other time of judgment that Israel ever had to go through. Isaiah 13, verse 6 says, How will ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand? It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Other warnings of judgment were usually warnings of captivity. Warnings of, yes, there will be some destruction, but there's mostly captivity. God is going to keep his hand on you and get you through this so that he can teach you something from this captivity, but you'll be okay. But this is talking about complete destruction. Take, for example, a, a very obscure book called Zephaniah, the prophecy of the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. Notice clearly what it says, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near. That means it's near and it's near. It's getting nearer and nearer and nearer. And hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day, of, uh, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. I tell you this, it is hard to comfort anyone with those words. Would you agree? So when did Paul say comfort one another with these words? When he says, the Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them and to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Why? Because the next day or that day begins the day of the Lord. Seven years of great tribulation, of great darkness, of great judgment. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul made it clear to the church why the importance of the rapture should be seen. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Notice the, the past tense that's being used. Delivered us from the wrath to come. It's a sure thing to every believer in Jesus Christ. It is a sure thing. As we're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus, as we keep our heads up and look up because our redemption draweth nigh, it is a sure thing. And then every chapter, at the ending of each chapter, there's a mention of the coming of Jesus 
And notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we went to first chapter 1 and now chapter 5, verse 9, for God has not appointed us to wrath. He has not appointed us to go through that wrath, but to obtain. Now, keep that word obtain in mind. To obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, looking at our text in verse 1, going back to our text, there is no doubt that Paul is clearly writing of the return of Jesus and that the wording implies a difference between the coming and our gathering. This is a strong suggestion that there are fundamentally two comings of Jesus. One coming is for his church, as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 18. And the other coming is with his church to judge a rebellious world. That is, two parts of one great event. Two parts of one great event. He comes for his church before the great day of the Lord. At the end of the seven-year period, he comes with the saints to execute his judgment, as it were. The phrase, as that the day of Christ is at hand, that we find there in verse 2, has been somewhat confusing as well. Paul used a word for is at hand. That little phrase is, a one Greek, is one Greek word that simply means being present. Now, what it means is don't be shaken or troubled as if the day of Christ has come, has become present. Don't be shaken or troubled as if the day of Christ has come, as if the day of Christ is present, as if the day of Christ has been fulfilled. Don't be shaken or troubled. No, it hasn't yet been completed. That is what Paul is saying. The day of the Lord has not come. The rapture hasn't happened yet. We're still here. Now, they were afraid that they were already in the tribulation period, and they had missed the rapture of the church for some reason. So if they were, certain signs would be present And those signs had yet to be. Those signs hadn't happened yet. So Paul continues on, and he says in verses 3 through 5 then, let no man deceive you by any means. Now, this is exactly what Jesus taught the disciples in Matthew chapter 24, in Luke 21, and in Mark chapter 13, that the very key element of the times of the end was going to be deception. So Paul says, let no man deceive you By any means, for that day shall not come, except... Now remember, that day shall not come. The day of Christ, when he comes for his church, which is now the beginning of the day of the Lord, in the beginning of that seven-year period, that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Something is going to happen... around that very same time that a person is going to be revealed, a man of sin and the son of perdition. I think we all know who that is. The Bible in some places calls him the Antichrist. The book of Revelation calls him the beast. But it is a person. 
And there are some Bible students that today look at these things and they say, if we are where we are today, the possibility exists that this son of perdition, this man of sin, is already on the earth somewhere. But unrevealed yet. Unrevealed. And what is, what it, how is he described here? Look at verse 4. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Now, that gives us an indication that his motivation and all of the things that he comes to do comes from some source previous. Think of Isaiah chapter 14. Who's mentioned there? Lucifer. And what is he mentioned about? Oh, Lucifer, the son of the morning, who does what? Who says, I will ascend unto the Most High. I will sit on the throne. I, I, I. So this man of sin will be possessed with that very same attitude, with that very same motivation, and possessed, if you will, by Satan himself, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. By the way, think about the serpent in the garden, who already is kind of indicating... uh, that um, you can be like God. In effect, he was saying, you can be like God just like I am. Like I'm God. He opposes himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, notice the pronoun, he as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Which, of course, He's only showing himself as he is because he's not God. You got, got the picture here? See, I got people now that can say this, you know. You got the picture? Okay, good, all right, good, all right. Got the picture there? Live stream? Okay. Now, remember ye not, now notice this. He says, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? That is an amazing statement that Paul makes because what he's saying is, when I taught you as a young church, I was telling you, Jesus is coming and all these things are going to be happening and you need to be ready. You know that there are people today that say, you know, we don't teach prophecy because, you know, it's kind of hard to understand and people, you know, I mean, they've got so many other things to learn, you know, about, about being like Jesus and being like this and being like that. All, by the way, all those things are important. But you know what's important? How we live knowing that he can come at any moment. That's what's important. Because he can come at any moment. So, Paul talks about a falling away, or if you will, the falling away, which speaks of apostasy. Now, the Greek word apostasia is the very same word that is used there for this falling away. The Greek word, the Greek word apostasia is used for a rebellion or a departure. A rebellion or a departure. In this case, it is a rebellion toward and a departure from the truth of God's word. That is the apostasy that is taking place today, in much, even in much of the church, what is called the church. An apostasy, a, a, a rebellion toward the word of God, a departure from the word of God. Included, included in that uh, is the denial of the deity, 
of Jesus Christ. The denial of the deity of Jesus Christ and the inspiration and reliability of the scriptures. A denial of the inspiration of the scripture and the reliability of the scripture. This is one of the problems with having so many different Bible translations that are not even based on the right uh, uh, manuscripts and texts. So there's a connection now. There is a connection with the apostasy of professing believers and a general worldwide rebellion against God and all that he is and all that he represents. And so that, that gives us a, a, a double challenge. We're challenged by the world and its hatred for God and for Jesus Christ. But when people in the, in the, in the so-called you know, visible church question the, the reliability of Scripture or question the deity of Jesus Christ, question the, the, resurre- the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, question the resurrection of Jesus Christ, question the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. What kind of Christianity is that? So listen what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And again, these are prophetic scriptures that are trying to get us to realize where we are today in this world. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Departure from the faith is apostasy. Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Let me interject here, and may I say, with all due respect to our Catholic family and friends, but the current Pope, Pope Francis, is not one that backs down from doing stuff that just amazes and should amaze Catholics. Welcoming a a, a, a Amazon shaman, a a female Amazon shaman uh, at the Vatican who comes with with an idol, Pachamama. I know it sounds funny. Pachamama. An Incan deity. Pachamama just simply means Earth Mother or Mother Earth. And he offers a plant to Pachamama on the grounds of the Vatican, who embraces embraces more uh, grand imams from Islam than he would ever embrace anyone from Israel. You follow along with what he's saying and what he's doing. He's called the New World Pope, or the Pope for the New World Order. Do you know what he's taken off of his own titles? He's taken off the statement, the Vicar of Christ. Now, I'm not big about being a you know, vicarious person in place of Christ on the earth, but that's one of the that's one of the titles of the poem. He's taking it off. Why? Because he doesn't represent Jesus Christ. He does not represent Christ. And Catholics need to wake up to this. By the way, some Catholics have. And they're up in arms about it, but you know how politics can be. Seducing spirits. Doctrines of devils. The New Age movement, folks, sounds pretty good. 
New Age movement, you know, includes a little bit of yoga, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They bring it into the church. What are you bringing into the church? Seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Because the New Age movement in the church is just the old age occultism. The worship of serpents. Time and time again, we're being warned in the scriptures. And so we go into speaking lies and hypocrisy. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Notice this, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And, and it just hit me when I was reading this yesterday, and even last night when I said, you know, forbidding to marry and commanding. You know, we're hearing a lot today from the so-called experts, forbidding us to do certain things, commanding us to do certain things, commanding us not to do certain things. And this is the reason why I'm so... I better check my pulse here. It's really hot. That we're listening to these voices and not to the voice of God. You know, if we were just to look at it from a very, uh, let's say, just a very uh, nationalistic point of view, you know, it, it's, it's all that uh, goes against the Constitution of the United States. But even more than that, it goes against what we've been called to do. We've been called to go into the world and to teach all nations. Teach all nations. To be light and salt. Take that for what it's worth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. Paul isn't done with giving us a picture of what's going on. He says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. I say this to you because we have to be living in the last days with everything that we see happening today. And not just the pandemic, but everything that has led up to this point. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Take that for a moment and just think, lovers of their own selves. They're worried about all kinds of things because of themselves and not realizing that God has given us a commission. Be careful. Be careful. Pray. I hope you're praying. If you're in lockdown today. But men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, which means without control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. The very last chapter of that same book, 2 Timothy 4, he says in verses 3 and 4, For the time will come, may I say to you, the time has come, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. I got sick and tired of looking at certain pictures of, of, of uh, prosperity teachers like Kenneth Copeland embracing the Pope. And saying, you know, this is, this, is, this is where we're headed today. This is where the church needs to be. Folks, the scriptures are being very clear to us. This is what is going to be happening in the last days. This is where we are now. Apostasy is abounding. 
Then Paul mentions another component with apostasy. He says, you know, he's telling us, in effect, it's not a system, but a person. It's not a system, but a person. The man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition. And while there have been those who have believed this to be a system or, a, or an office of religious significance, there is no good reason to see this man of sin any other way than as an individual of great prominence in the last of the last days. In fact, Daniel himself, Daniel the prophet in Daniel uh, chapters 9 through 11, describes an individual. First of all, the prince that shall come, Daniel 9.26. A king of fierce countenance, Daniel 8.23. And then he's described as a willful king. It says, this king will do according to his will. The willful king, Daniel 11, verses 36 through 45. Read all of that. Jesus, by the way, and if, if you take anything home with you, take this one verse home. Jesus would allude to an individual person in John chapter 5, verse 43. Notice what he says. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. What has he just described? The coming of Antichrist. He's described a time when Jesus is looked uh, at uh, very hatefully by much of the world. And he says... But if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. This man of sin, this son of perdition, will be the very embodiment of the spirit of Antichrist. The very embodiment of the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. Whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now, already, is it in the world? Well, if it was in the world in John's time, it is definitely in the world today, in our time. This spirit of Antichrist. How many different ideas and ways do people have about Jesus in their own minds, and in their own teachings, in their own religions, and in their own ways of thinking? In verse 4 of our text, this man of sin will demand worship for himself, sitting as God in the temple of God, which is considered the most holy place, because God says, that is my place, that is my holy Zion, it is mine. And this antichrist, this beast, is the abomination of desolation, as spoken of by Daniel the prophet in Daniel 11, verse 31, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. The abomination that makes desolate, Jesus talks about. There were forerunners like Antiochus Epiphanes, forerunners to this person who goes into a temple 
and desecrates the temple with, a, with the killing of a, sacrificing of a pig as Antiochus did. But that was just a, a foretaste of what was to come. This Antichrist will show himself that he is God and none, and none other. Well, that's what he wants people to believe. And the very setting up, folks, the very setting up of a new world order, of a one world religion, of a one world government, of a one world leader, of a one world monetary system, which, by the way, you'll read in Revelation chapter 13. Read the whole chapter, if you will, and you'll see these things there. These are all pivotal signs for us of Antichrist. Being in the world, possibly today. And I would have to say he probably is. But he is no more than a parody of the true Messiah. He is an evil imitation. He is a counterfeit. And everything he does is counterfeit. And this is the description of the great apostasy that Paul is mentioning. And Paul tells this church, don't you remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? And, but, and then Paul goes on and he says in verses 6 through 8 of 2 Thessalonians 2, and now ye know what withholdeth. Now, look at that word there, what withholdeth, which means it is, you know, now ye know what restrains. I'll talk about this word in a moment. That he might be revealed in his time. There's a restraining taking place so that the Antichrist isn't revealed until his time is to be revealed. For the mystery of iniquity, which is, by the way, the mystery of lawlessness, does already work. If they were lawless in Paul's time, guess what? They're much more lawless today. But notice this in the next phrase. Only he who now letteth will let. What does that mean? Only he. Now notice, he, this he is not the Antichrist. This is the one restraining. Only he who now letteth, which means restrains. It's the very same word as withholdeth in the Greek. Will let or will restrain until he be taken out of the way. Until he is told to stop restraining and he's taken out of the way from that particular work. And notice what then takes place. Verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Well, who's that wicked? Antichrist. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So first let me say that the words withholdeth and letteth, that is the Greek word kateko, and it means to hold down. It means to suppress, and it means to restrain. And it is the same Greek word that is used by Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, in a totally different way. He uses it this way. In Romans 1, 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, that word hold is kateko, who hold or suppress or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. That is saying, you know, because of their ungodliness and unrighteousness, they are suppressing the truth of righteousness, which will only convict them. They don't want that conviction. They don't want that to, 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 to change who they are. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. 
How many people, how many of us suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Well, we didn't want to hear the gospel. Somebody would come and tell us, hey, can I share something with you? Well, if it's about Jesus, I don't want to hear it. If it's something about religion, I don't want to hear it. If it's something from the Bible, I don't want to hear it. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you went through that? Yourselves. Until God got you. And then that's all you want to hear. So who is this restraining that is keeping things in check? Who's suppressing what's happening in the world today? Until, he's, until he lets go. See, the, the, the suppressing is like holding down a big spring. You don't want that spring to pop up. So who's, who's restraining? Well, there's been much speculation regarding this person. Because he is a person. He who withholdeth, or he who restrains. He who letteth. Those who hold to a prophetic position known as the pre-wrath rapture position believe that it is Michael the archangel. But they also hold to the church going through a little over half of the tribulation period, hence pre-wrath rapture. (laughs) Understand that Michael is a created being and and cannot be in more than one place at, at a time. But the Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit can be in more than one place at a time. Oh, and by the way, God's wrath begins with the first seal judgment and the emerging of the Antichrist, Revelation chapter 6. So understand that the church will not be present when that happens. The church will not be present. I mean, all of, all of this is God's timing issues, but he's got it perfectly under control. There'll be a revealing. We'll be caught up. The day of the Lord begins. And so the restrainer, the one who is restraining, is the Holy Spirit working through believers, working through true believers, working through the church. Right now, we are part of that restraint. I mean, we're barely holding on. I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of lawlessness. But there are still laws that people are following. Look Look at this pandemic, what it's done. They're not really laws, but there are these either strong suggestions or orders that we have to follow. As believers, we are called the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The salt, the salt is a preserving influence, but it is an influence nonetheless. Light of the world. It is letting the light of the glory of Christ shine through us But we have to be in the world. How can we be these things without the influence and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives? So we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We're doing what God has called us to do as light and salt until we're taken out of the way. We're caught up together to be with the Lord. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit is taken out of the earth? No, because he's God. He's got to be here. But his restraining has been lifted. His work of restraining is lifted when the, whole, when the, when the Antichrist is revealed. Notice what, what, what Jesus says in John 14, verses 16 through 18. He says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, the Paracletus, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. 
So the world doesn't know that it's the Holy Spirit that is restraining. I mean, you know, once the restraint is gone, I mean, pardon the expression, but all hell will break loose. And Jesus says, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And he sends his Holy Spirit on Pentecost. By the way, pray for the churches in in California. They want to begin on May the 31st, which is Pentecost. They want to start on that day in spite of the restrictions that were told to them that they were non-essentials. Churches are non-essential in California. They're going to start anyway. Pray for them. Pray for them. So listen, we think that the world is bad today. Wait until the church is removed and the Holy Spirit's influence with it. Don't you think the world really wants the church out of the way anyway? The book of Revelation tells us, you know, you know they tell us, you know, when the, uh, when the two witnesses are, are killed, you know, that they, they actually begin to uh, uh, rejoice and have, uh, you know, they probably have Christmas trees and, and give presents because they give presents to each other because the two witnesses are, are, are killed, you know. They're going to be rejoicing when the church is out of the way, too. I don't, I don't, you know, we don't know exactly how that's going to be, but that's, that's the way the world is today. Okay, getting back. Verse 8 of our text reminds us of a couple of things. Verse 8, let me read it to you. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. First of all, the Antichrist's power will only last seven years. Antichrist power will only last seven years. After that time, he's going to hear the words, you're fired. Literally. Literally. Because he'll be cast into the lake of fire. But I want you not to forget that a lot of damage can be done in seven years. A lot of damage can be done in seven years. And then Paul says in verse 9, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. Remember what I said about the man of sin, the son of perdition, would be possessed not only with the attitudes of Satan, but Satan himself. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. People are being deceived thinking that they can create their own uh, morality. They can create their own way of thinking. They're deceived because it's all unrighteousness. Because there's only one thing that, that Satan gives, and that's unrighteousness. The only one thing that Satan represents, it's iniquity. It's transgression. It's sin. It's going against the God that created him because he wants to be in the seat of God. All deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. As I mentioned earlier, Catholics are being deluded by the work and the actions of the Pope, who today is doing nothing that is Christ-like, doing nothing that is biblical, but doing everything to bring about a new world order. That's delusion. That they should believe a lie. 
And it isn't just the belief of a lie, it is the belief of the lie, as I'll mention in just a moment, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If someone has spiritual power, signs, and wonders, these are not enough to prove that they are of God. Yet some would still believe that they have to be of God. But the scripture is clear that the working of Satan is one of lying wonders. Lying wonders, counterfeit. Deception is the key. Four times Jesus mentions deception in Matthew chapter 24. Four times. To say, listen, deception is going to be the key in the end times. Look at Revelation chapter 13. I told you you're going to have to read that, but turn to Revelation 13 verse 13. It says, and he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth. Notice that word, he deceiveth. Them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles, which he hath power to do in the sight of the beast. Understand this. God is allowing Satan to do these things. God allows that because God is in control of all things. He is allowing it because the end result eventually is going to be the very destruction of Satan and of Antichrist and of the false prophet. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. By the way, when you read this, you'll realize that Satan is even going to counterfeit the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all counterfeit because that's all he can do. And as verse 10 of our text states, the deception takes root only in those who do not receive the love of the truth. In other words, they are ready for the deception of Antichrist because they desire it. They have rejected the gospel, so in effect they are going to desire anything that is contrary to the gospel. And in desiring it, they will believe the lie. The lie that has captivated and gripped man since the garden. And the lie in the garden was this. Listen carefully. Watch it right behind me. God is not alone. God. God is not God alone. You can be like him. You can be like him. That's the new age. That's the religion of man. That's what being, that is what is being taught to many children in schools today, both in the United States and in Canada. Canada has, has, has pushed this for many, many years. They have pushed a oneness with creation. A, I say creation. A oneness with all material things in the world. That's called pantheism. That's a religion in itself. But it's being treated as, as you know, we, that's, that's, that's why environmentalism is so important. Because we become one with all created things. All material things. Oneness. Christianity is not oneness. Christianity is two-ness. There's the creation, and then there's the God who is above all creation. 
Yet he has made a way for us to be connected to him. How? Through his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that has bridged the gap between us in the world and God in his kingdom. Come unto me, Jesus said, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. By the way, God is God alone, for there is no other. And so the encouragement comes not only for the church in Thessalonica, but for last-day believers as well. That's you and me. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 17. Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning, from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel, to the obtaining, there's that word again, obtaining, of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast, be steadfast, in other words, immovable, stand fast and hold. There's that word hold, but it's not kateko like before. It is the word krateo, which means obtain and retain. The other word meant to restrain, this word means retain. This is significant. Hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. The tradition of the word of God, not the traditions of men. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Paul praised the Lord for bringing salvation to these young and vibrant believers from the beginning. In other words, before they chose God, God chose them. Before we chose God, God chose us. And not only were they chosen, but they were saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. A person cannot really claim to be chosen without the evidence of, of sanctification, without that evidence of of being set apart from the world and unto God. So why must we as they stand fast until the day of Christ? We should stand fast because of the current distresses upon believers. The persecutions, the pestilences, the tribulations. That's going on now. We should stand fast because of the coming judgment of the world in which we live. And know that the Lord will be taking vengeance in flaming fire. We must stand fast because of the coming deception and power, signs and lying wonders. We won't be here to see them, but we need to stand fast because everything that's happening is happening to bring that about. And we must stand fast because of our future and glorious destiny. It is the obtaining and retaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We obtain and we retain. We hold fast. I love that picture because so often we want people to say, you know, take hold of the salvation, but what do you do after that? You, you take it and then you hold on to it. 
and you love him and you serve him and you become light and you become salt. You become an influence for heaven and for eternity. I want to leave you with Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. And I want to read it to you in light of all the stuff that we've been dealing with over the past few months. Just listen carefully. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We can even ask, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because notice what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or COVID-19? I'm not trying to add to the scripture. It's there. That's the tribulation that many people are going through today. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Well, if Christians had known better back then, they would have said, you know, we better, we better have a lockdown. Because we're going to be killed all the day long. You know what I mentioned last week? Reading from C.S. Lewis's uh, article on, on, on living in an atomic age. He said, we're all so worried about what's going to happen. How should we do this or how should we do that? He says, live. Because one thing is for certain, when you came into this world, you came into this world with a death sentence on you because of sin. As soon as you were born, you were born in sin, you had a death sentence on you already. So what are you worried about? Paul says, nay, in all these things, take hold of this, please. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That's Jesus right now. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, you know, Paul could have stopped right there because what else is there other than death or life? But he specifies, he says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, the deeper state, nor things present. What's present today? Fear. Nor things to come. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who or what can separate us from him? I'd be shouting. No one, no thing can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen?